0: If you would open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. So I mentioned last week, it's been suggested that verse number 12 marks the end of the sermon proper of the Sermon on the Mount. And that what follows is the application, the conclusion. And it's found in a series of warnings. And where the sermon begins with, uh, as one writer puts it, unqualified tenderness He speaks of blessings for those who we would normally say are unblessed, the poor in spirit, those who mourn. It's like, these aren't blessed people. And yet Jesus speaks these words of great tenderness. But when we get to the end of the sermon and now in the application, um, again, one has suggested that it is unqualified toughness, warning that to be a follower of Jesus is not an intellectual option. It's not a set of suggestions that you can take or leave or a philosophy of life, one among many choices. The sermon, which in many ways, even today, I think is heard as very broad and wide and humane in mercy. Um, when we come to these verses, it's like, it's somebody else speaking? Is somebody else preaching? Because it doesn't sound like the rest of the sermon. Beginning with the fact that he says his way is narrow and the broad way leads to destruction one may hear a wideness in the Beatitudes, the breadth of the Lord's Prayer that many people say even this day. Then how can the way of Jesus be considered narrow? Last Sunday we looked at four pairs or four contrasts, two ways, two gates, two destinations, two crowds. And it begins with the command to enter um, what we hear in verses 13 and 14 points to the absolute nature of the choices before us. I think we would prefer to have more choices, you know, sort of a Baskin-Robbins thing, 31 flavors, not just you know, one or the other. Um, but we can only choose one. And Moses made this clear in Deuteronomy 30. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. If you think about this, if God is life, if he is the source of life, then either we choose to follow him, follow the Lord Jesus, but if we do not, if we turn away, then the only option left is death. There's there's not anything else. When Adam and Eve sinned against the giver of life, then they turn to death. In the verses that follow, there are another series of contrasts or of pairs. We will look at two today, or look at one, the two trees, and then the Lord willing next week, uh, the two doers and the two houses. Okay, but before we look at this, I'd remind you of two important realities that should govern our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, this is addressed to the followers of Jesus. This is not a sermon to the world at large, okay? Um, In Matthew 5, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, he's teaching his disciples, those who are his followers, Um, It's not just a sermon for anyone. Um, In the sermon, Jesus describes what it means to be his follower, to be a member of the kingdom of God. Okay. And in its message, it continues to address those who follow Jesus. That's the purpose of this sermon. The second thing that we need to remember is that the sermon is a package deal. People may quote different parts of it, like the Lord's Prayer, or blessed are the peacemakers, Blessed are the merciful, but they conveniently leave out all the other stuff, and that is not acceptable. It is to be taken as a whole. Um, That's why we saw in the first sermon in chapter seven, you know, "Do not judge," is something that people like to quote all the time, but they don't want to quote the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the way it works. In this sermon, which is a package deal, Jesus describes what it means to be his follower. The character, the influence, the righteousness, the piety, and the ambition of such a person. And he tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In chapter 7, Jesus turns to the matter of relationships. He begins with the relationship within the Christian community. I think this is a very modern problem that we think of being a Christian as a very individual thing um, and not as being part of a community and that we've really missed something truly important there. And so here in chapter seven, Jesus begins by talking about relationships within the community. Then when he tells us that we are not to judge, we are not to be hypocrites, okay, But then he also tells us how we are to act our relationship toward those who are antagonistic unbelievers. And then he talks about people in general, that we are to treat them as we would have them treat us. And that seems to end the sermon proper. Verse number 13 begins a series of warnings. It's the application, and it's, one could say, tough a a bit brutal it's like yeah we, we prefer the first part of the sermon we're not really crazy about this part in the first warning which we looked at last week Jesus separates his followers from the majority into the community of the few let me read verses 13 and 14 enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it So, we are to go through the narrow gate, the narrow way. We are followers of Jesus. Sounds like a good thing. And at this point, we might feel a certain security. I am a child of God. I am a part of the Christian community. I belong to the community of faith. Uh, I'm on the right path. Um, I did say last Sunday, you may remember, that though we may enter through the narrow gate, we may in fact find ourselves wandering or drifting or even choosing to go to the broadway uh, which leads to destruction after all that's where the majority of people are and we're not really keen on being left out we would rather sort of be in with the crowd that's the first warning okay the second warning though you might say well i'm secure i'm now part of the community of faith But the second warning tells us that there are those within that same community, in fact, who are not true believers, who Jesus calls false prophets. So we might feel secure. Yes, I'm on the narrow path. I'm with God's people. Everything's fine. Wait till Jesus gets back and everything will be fine. Um, Well, beginning in verse number 15, we find out that's actually not the case. Follow along, if you would, as I read. Verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. This section begins with another imperative. Watch out for false prophets. The King James, by the way, and the ESV have beware. Beware of false prophets. Now, in saying this, Jesus obviously is assuming that there, in fact, would be such people among his people. There would be false prophets. There would be such individuals. Jesus warns about them because they already existed in his time. Certainly was the case in the Old Testament. In our study of Ezekiel, we found an entire chapter, chapter 13, which was devoted to the issue of false prophets. Ezekiel was commissioned to be a prophet, to be a mouthpiece for God. And he finds that there are other people who claim to be speaking for God who are, in fact, false prophets. There is a difference and we'll come to it in a bit, but Ezekiel focuses on what the false prophets are saying. This is from Ezekiel 13. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying, say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. Their visions are false and their divinations a lie. They say the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them that they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? They lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And and lest, lest people feel left out, the women feel left out, he also speaks against prophetesses. And it is not only that these women prophesy falsely, like the false prophets, But they do something else. Now, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy of their own imagination. Prophesy against them. Okay? Something else. Woe to the women who sew magic charms on their wrists and make veils of various lengths for their heads in order to snare people. In other words, they were not only speaking, they were selling these amulets, these magic charms, these veils that they said offered protection It's an Old Testament thing. It's something that existed in the time of Jesus. It has existed since Jesus ascended into heaven. Almost every New Testament epistle speaks of false teachers. They're called different things. And by the way, the word in Greek before the title is pseudo, which we have in in English. So false teachers, false prophets, false Christ even, false apostles. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for such men are false apostles, pseudo-apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And then in 2 Peter 2, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. It's a continuing condition. And then Jesus in Matthew 24 said, for false Christ, pseudo-Christ, And false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. We find them throughout the history of the church. An important point to make is that in fact, the false teachers, the false prophets, the false apostles are members of the community of faith. You know, if somebody was outside and said, I'm not a Christian, I don't believe in any of that. And let me tell you what I think we're like, well, yeah, we're not going to believe you. But if somebody within the community, within the church says, this is what God says, and then they begin to say something that's just you know, wrong, we might be confused. It's easier if somebody's outside, but if somebody's within the community, it makes it quite devastating. The question has been asked, Why does the Lord allow such persons to continue? It's a hard question. I would just offer a suggestion that in God's providence, these false prophets, these false teachers present us as God's people with the challenge to think and to define the truth. Otherwise, we'll just go along our merry way. Unless we were challenged, and in fact, these false prophets, these false teachers do challenge us. But also, um, in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a fascinating parable, the parable of the weeds. Let me just read it quickly to you. Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven. Remember, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Uh, Apparently, the type of weed that is being described looks just like wheat until the the buds appear. Then you're like, oh, this this actually isn't wheat. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this," he replied. The servants asked him, "Do you want us to go out and pull them up?" "No," he answered, "because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up all with the wheat, uh, root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. God has allowed." and his providence for these people to remain among us. But they've done incredible damage to the church. We have to admit that. In warning and telling us about the false prophets, Jesus is also making the assumption that there is such a thing as truth. Francis Schaeffer used to call it capital T truth, true truth. Okay? There is something that is in fact true And it is a standard by which we can, in fact, look at false prophets and say, oh, you're not a true prophet because what you are saying is contrary to what God has said in his word. If there were no objective standards, how can you call them false? Okay, there can only be false prophets if, in fact, there is true truth. But wait, wait, wait. Didn't chapter 7 begin with, do not judge? I mean, wasn't that how this whole thing started? If you were to say that somebody is a false prophet, are you, in fact, not making a judgment? What we saw in examining the matter of judging was this, that first of all, we need to take care to correct ourselves, to take the plank, the beam that is in our eye out, before we look at the speck that is in someone else's. What is required is discernment. We can't do this on our own. That's why we are to pray, we are to ask, we are to seek, we are to knock, that God, in fact, would give us discernment. And such prayers are absolutely appropriate, they are necessary, and by God's grace they are productive, that God would, in fact, give us insight. So having established that there are and there will be false prophets within those who claim to be the children of God, what is the warning? Well, verse 15, watch out for false prophets or beware of them. They come to you in sheep's clothing, <coughs> excuse me, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. That is, they are both dangerous and they are deceptive. They are dangerous because they are wolves. In ancient Palestine, the first century, wolves were the natural predator, the natural enemy of sheep. And sheep were absolutely defenseless against wolves. That's why you have shepherds. And in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In the church there are those who are to protect the sheep. And like it or not, this is the metaphor used for the people of God. That we are sheep. We are the flock of God. Okay, And Jesus is our good shepherd. And there are those who in fact would try to destroy the flock and scatter the fro- the flock. Those who are in positions of authority, are to protect the flock. They are to protect the sheep. But this presupposes an attack from outside. Got the sheep together, the flock, and the wolves are out there. But what Jesus describes are those within the flock. And Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, elders, leaders in the church in Ephesus, he says, this is in Acts 20, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. The wolves aren't just out there. That makes them dangerous. But they are inside the flock as well, and this makes them quite deceptive. They are deceitful. You know, in verse number six, Jesus talked about, you know, giving sacred to dogs and pearls to pigs. In the ancient world, you knew what a dog was and a pig because of their filthy habits. Okay, dogs were not the pets that we imagine today. Um, They were wild. They were feral. So you knew what they were. But here, Jesus says of the false prophets, they will come to you in sheep's clothing. if you can imagine this, they would put on what a sheep has, its wool, and then sneak in and try to do damage to the flock. They disguise themselves. They don't advertise. They don't say, I'm a false prophet, and I'm here to destroy the congregation. They are dangerous, and they are deceitful. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, knowing that the Christians are credulous people, not, not gullible, but we are credulous We are believing people. We want to believe. He conceals his dark purpose beneath the cloak of Christian piety, hoping that his innocuous disguise will avert detection. So how are we to detect these wolves? Not those out there. I think we need to do that. But those who are within the flock. Jesus says in verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Jesus has switched metaphors here from wolves and sheep to the, the matter of trees and fruit. Um, a wolf might wear sheep's clothing, if you wish, but the fruit that's what the tree bears. That, that cannot be disguised. So Jesus goes from sort of non-recognition. You know, the wolf sneaks in wearing the wool. You don't know it's a wolf. But, you know, a tree, it's, it's recognizable. It's something you cannot hide. You might mistake a wolf for a sheep. You might. There's no way you would mistake what a tree is. If it's an apple tree, it will have apples. If it's a fig tree, it will have figs. Sooner or later, a tree will betray itself by its fruit. A tree cannot disguise itself. So Jesus asked, you you know, if you want grapes, do you go for your thorn bushes? If you want figs, do you go to thistles? Like, no. So in the same way, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. I must confess, the first part is easier, and I prefer it. Grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles. I get that. But, you know, good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. I'm not a farmer. I'm not an agrarian. I'm, you know, I I don't. How will I know, in fact, if this is a bad tree? How will I know that it's going to produce bad fruit? We'll get to that in a minute. Um, I would suggest to you that there are actually three tests that we might use. That would give us insight into what is a bad tree and bad fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Okay. The first test has to do with their character and conduct. How do false prophets behave? How do they live? In 2 Peter 2, Peter has a lot to say about false teachers. He says, But there were also false prophets among the people. He's talking about the Old Testament just as there will be false teachers among you. So it's a continuing phenomenon. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, the te- these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Jude has very similar language. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. By the way, we studied the book of Jude earlier this year, at the beginning of the year, um, and he's quite explicit about these false teachers. And it's something that Jesus brought up about the scribes and Pharisees, their behavior, their conduct, their character. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. And when you pray, do not be like hypocrites, be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. So it is by their conduct, how do they live? Okay? The second test has to do with their teaching. And this, I think, is probably what we're more comfortable with. This is certainly what we hear from Ezekiel. Uh, and Peter says, destructive heresies with stories they have made up. Um, We hear it later in Jesus' ministry. Um, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil speak anything good, for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks? And then at the end of this he says for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Correct teaching begins with the person of Jesus that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Okay? And that we are to follow Christ alone. Like the hymn that we sang today in Christ alone we find the truth. It's a narrow gate. It's a narrow way. It's the way of Jesus we are to follow in his steps and false teachers will teach something else another way they will point away from Christ usually to the broadway a third test has been suggested this has to do with their influence and and here I really want to be careful you know peter said many will follow their shameful ways and I don't want to say that, you know, if somebody has a large congregation or a large following, that person is a false prophet. (laughs) No, okay, not saying that at all. Instead, we should look at the result of their influence in the lives of those that they teach. You may remember, it's going back to chapter 5, that one of the things Jesus spells out about his followers is their character and their influence. two very common things, two indispensable provisions. Uh, In the first century, uh, Pliny, the historian, the Roman historian, said that nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. In Latin, it is sale et sole. Sort of a play there. The need for light, I think, is more obvious. Salt, since it has many uses, Um, may not seem as obvious, but they are, in fact, two indispensable provisions. And will, in fact, the followers of these false prophets, the result of their teaching, will these people be salt and light? You'll notice that Jesus does not command his followers to be salt. You're to be salt. You're to be light. He says you are. You are salt. You are light. Not you ought to be or you should become, He simply says, you are. And it presupposes that the world is a place of darkness that needs light. It's a place that lacks salt and light. And the followers of Jesus are to be that which the world lacks. We are here for the good of others. We're not here for ourselves. I think this might be sort of a side test you can ask. As these false teachers are teaching, what are they teaching? Is it, oh, it's all about you, what good will come for you? Or is it about you're to be salt and light for the benefit of the world, for the benefit of others? We are for the world, not for ourselves. What does it mean to be salt? What is the nature of Christian saltiness, if you wish? What is it that makes us or marks us as unique That we may be, in fact, contaminated or we might have that saltiness washed away. Well, you just need to go back to the Beatitudes. It's character, then influence. If we have this character, if we have the things that Jesus has said, we are blessed and then we are salt. Our character as his followers is the saltiness, if you wish. And without these qualities... We have lost that, and this is what we find in the followers of the false teachers. I think we find it in the church today. We want to fulfill a mission. We believe that God has called us to do something, but we don't talk so much about the character that is required. The mission has replaced character. And this is not good. We lose our saltiness. We tell the world it needs Christ, and then we try to be self-reliant. We tell the world that sin is wrong and responsible for so many ills, but do we mourn over that lostness? Do we mourn the terrible things we see in our world? We call the world to bow before Christ, to be humble. To acknowledge him as Lord. And then we try to be self-assertive. We tell the world it hungers for the wrong things. But do we not in fact hunger for the same things? We say seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But is that in fact what we are seeking? One of the qualities of salt is that its work is hidden. It is unseen. You do not see the salt to enjoy its benefits and its presence. That's why I think we prefer the light metaphor because you can see that. It is, you know, it's something we can see. It's very visual. It's spectacular. It's something to be seen. There are objective results. You turn on the light and you can now see. Like that, you can see. And that's why, I think, in the church, in the modern church, oftentimes we speak in terms of people, numbers, money, buildings, exposure. But in fact, salt is something, you don't see it, but you know what? If it's not there, you know it's not there. You ever had something to eat and it doesn't have salt? And you're like, something's missing. Its influence is gone. We are to be the salt of the earth. It's a statement of fact. It's a declaration. And how do we do that? Go back to the beginning. Go back to blessed are the poor in spirit. I cannot do this on my own. And I think one of the qualities of false teachers is that they, in fact, point to us. You can do this. Or follow me and I will do it for you. But the beginning of it all is that we are to be poor in spirit and look to Christ. When you call out to God, either for the first time or the millionth time, we all begin at the same place. We acknowledge our inability to do it on our own, to do what is right apart from God. In our prayer of confession today, we admit it as much. The good we want to do we don't do, the the things we don't want to do we end up doing. We begin with blessed are the poor in spirit. We are salt and we are light. We are to be in a world that is in darkness as it is and by God's grace we are to be light. See it isn't about us. We are here for the world. And I think false prophets would say, no, 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 it's about you. And so the third test I would suggest to you is what are the results in their disciples, if you wish, the people that followed them? What is it all about for them? Are they seeking to be salt and light? Jesus warns his followers about false prophets. More to come, Lord willing, next Sunday. And I've suggested three tests, which I hope are helpful. But we are to remember that we are to ask, we are to seek, we are to knock. We need discernment. We need wisdom. Because if we're so busy looking at the world and condemning the world and all the terrible things that they're teaching out there and they're saying, we may in fact forget that within the community of faith, those who claim to be the people of God may in fact be false prophets. Yeah, it'd just be so much easier if all the enemies were outside. Just make it so much easier. That's not the way it is. By the way, if all the enemies were outside, I wonder if we would ask, seek, and knock for discernment. We're just like, well, if they're outside, they're the bad guys, we're the good guys, got this covered. But the reality is we need discernment. We need the Spirit's wisdom moment by moment, day by day. And I think in, in a way that is beyond my comprehension, this is why God has, throughout human history, allowed false prophets, that we might gain discernment and wisdom and stand for what is true. Let's pray together. Our Father living when and where we do, even speak of false prophets might hint of hate speech how dare we say that someone is false that he or she is a false prophet a false apostle a false teacher but jesus as he brings his sermon to a close warns us that yes there is the broad way the wide gate that most people go through. We should go through the narrow gate, stay on the narrow path. But even within those who go through the narrow gate and the narrow path, there may be false teachers, and we are to be discerning. We are to watch out for them. We are to beware. And frankly, on our own, we are not sufficient for this. Spirit, we need discernment. We need to recognize our need of your wisdom. And rather than relying on our own abilities, our own intellectual abilities, we are to look to you. You would open our eyes to the truth, as well as to those things that are wrong, that we might stand against them. May we not be surprised that there are such people, false teachers. May we not despair that there are false teachers and false prophets. But know that our brothers and sisters from the Old Testament through the New Testament up to today have always faced this. And you've stood by your people every step of the way. The gates of hell will not prevail against your church. May we in, in the coming days think on these things. And as James tells us, may we not be hearers of the word, but doers as well. May we ask, seek, and knock every day for discernment, for wisdom. That we might in fact be followers of Jesus Christ. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. It's the beginning of a new week. We don't know what lies ahead. We have plans. We have a general schedule of what we're going to do. But only you know. You've already prepared the way ahead of us. May we look to you moment by moment. Here at the end again, we thank you for your love, your great love for us that you demonstrated supremely in Jesus Christ. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.